Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. All right, so when we look at great companies that we would all say are admired and that are highly valued by both their consumers, their employees, and obviously in the marketplace, we find that they do a lot more than just deliver profits. Now, I don't want to discredit profits, but I want to say in today's marketplace, I don't think it's enough. It certainly isn't enough to build the kind of loyalty we all dream about in our companies, loyalty from employees and loyalty from customers. So we're going to talk today about a fascinating study that is looking at what it is that consumers really genuinely want from companies they admire. And we're going to find that they want something that improves their lives. So the question for today is, does doing good really lead to corporate strength and stronger brands and trust and purpose and mission and cause and brand identity, or are they all the same? Now, you're going to be tempted to say that this show is about sustainability and about mission statements. And I want to caution you, it's about a lot more than that. It's about culture. It's about brand. It's about purpose. It's about trust internally and externally, and ultimately it's about employees and keeping your employees and what we do as leaders. So my guest today is Anne Bear Thompson. She's the pioneer of the brand citizenship movement, and she's a Trust Across America 2018 top thought leader in trust. Um, She's the author of the book, Do Good, Embracing Brand Citizenship to Fuel Both Purpose and Profit. Anne started her life as an executive, and she's been executive director of strategy and planning and the head of consulting at Interbrand. She was also the founder of a strategic consultancy company called 164th. And Anne has been working with leaders to do a whole host of things for quite a long time. So, Anne, welcome to the show. Quite a long time. Wow, I feel slightly dated. Uh, well, I never know, you know, what's a long time. You know, for some people, five years is a long time. For others, it's yeah, it, no. <laughs> we've been in this business a lot longer than that. So you've been yeah, working yeah. with executives for a long time. So at any rate, I'll not have. to offend on that one. <laughs> no, I just, in, 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 in a world of youth culture and today, you know, um, people always want you to say you're an innovator, you're this, you're that. But anyhow, yeah, oh, yeah. Um, we can dive into our topic now. Hi. Wisdom is what I'm after. So here we go. So, Anne, you spent a lot of time in the UK. And as you were moving Mm -hmm. back from the UK to the US, you started a series of studies on trends. Tell me about those studies. Tell me what you discovered. Kind of what happened. Yeah, it's actually really interesting, Wallace. Uh, um, I mean, Wanda, sorry. And you and I share that, that joint understanding of the similarities and differences between the US and the UK. So at the end of 2011, I had moved back um, full-time to New York, although clearly full-time uh, doesn't, isn't a prerequisite for not getting on a plane and traveling somewhere. Um, so you do go back and forth, and you're still connected to the world. But I wanted to reconnect to the U.S. and reconnect to U.S. businesses because a lot of the work I had done when I was in the U.K. was U.K. East. So UK into Asia and to the Middle East and places like that versus necessarily UK West and UK into the US. 
So I had been doing a study informally with millennials since 2006, and we decided to make it a more official study and add baby boomers into it. And this was at the end of 2011, so let me paint a little landscape for the moment we were doing it. The end of 2011 was another election year in the U.S., and it was a time when people thought they were experiencing the highest sense of bipartisanship they had ever experienced. They didn't know what was yet to come. And in many ways, it laid the landscape for what we're seeing now. In the U.K., the other place where we conducted this study, a conservative party was in, austerity measures were being talked about. Um, this was also three years after the Great Recession, so after the crash. And people in both countries and, frankly, across the globe were being told the world was getting better, the economy was getting stronger. But so many real people weren't feeling this. So we went out at the end of 2011 and did a study to come up with five trends to reconnect with businesses in the U.S. And what happened was so much more meaningful than what we expected. Two almost diametrically opposed findings jumped out of this study. What did we ask in this study? We asked people about their hopes and their dreams for the coming year, their fears. Um, and we also asked people about brands they thought would exhibit leadership in the coming year, and we asked them why. Brands you think are good corporate citizens and why. Brands you think are irresponsible corporate citizens and why. And in those questions about the brands, we didn't specify brands in advance. Many of the studies you read where companies are ranked actually have a set number of companies being asked about. So you don't realize that what you're seeing as number one was number one of a choice of 25. So this was a completely open study. So let's go to the beginning bit, their hopes and dreams and their fears for the coming year. These things were really intense. And people were talking to us about keeping their homes, uh, continuing their education, could they keep their health care, really big, important issues where it was the end of the year and we thought they were going to tell us that they wanted to lose weight or stop smoking. So that was really interesting. And when you started reading their actual comments and what they were actually saying about these, these issues, about their homes, um, the economy, uh, healthcare, education, big, big things, they were telling us that they didn't think government could fix these issues. And it was time that business stepped in and started to help out with this stuff because business had better capabilities to do this. So that's one finding, that government is not able to fix these problems. We want business to step in and fix them. Then this other finding, which was almost opposed to this came from the companies they named as good corporate citizens. So I don't know if you can think back to 2011, but if you were naming a good corporate citizen, who would you come up with? Geez, I'm not sure I have any idea back in 2011. Yeah. Certainly very <laughs> few were talking about citizenship at the time or purpose and mission or so on. Yeah, and it's easy so to look backwards, but I'm not sure what I would have mm -hmm. said in 2011. And I think that's probably um, in some ways exhibited in the responses we had. So we had over 2,200 brands named. So that's a really fragmented set of companies. And, you know, the companies that we were sort of expecting um, in the U.S., you'd think of the whole foods of the world and things like that um, back in 2011. And those types of companies were named by one to five people. Not a lot of people. And the companies that rose to the top and the reasons they rose to the top were really surprising. 
So Apple was the number one named good corporate citizen in both the U.S. and the U.K. And the reason why Apple was chosen was what was shocking, most especially. Now, Apple, during this period, was being lambasted by activists. And it was in the media, although not necessarily the mainstream media, but it was in the media that Apple had an issue with its chips and how the chips were made and its relationships with suppliers. And, and activists were really quite vocal about this at the time. So Apple being named number one was even more surprising. And the reason why people named Apple as number one was because it's brought joy into my life by bringing me music 24-7. And you step back for a moment and you say, wait, what does that have to do with citizenship? Another reason people told us was Apple helps me communicate and changes how I've communicated with people across the globe. So this was really surprising, especially since people were saying business should step in and fix what government can't do. So some of the other companies that were named in the top five were Walmart in the U.S. and Tesco in the U.K. at the time, and both for parallel reasons. Because of their pricing philosophies, I am afforded a better lifestyle. Again, a me proposition. And Ford in the U.S. was another one that comes to mind that was named in this study. And Ford was named in the U.S. not because of its uh, great community suppliers or things that it does that you would normally have put into citizenship, but because Ford has turned around its business. Ford was becoming more profitable again. Um, this represents America can turn around, and if America can turn around, I can turn around. So this was really surprising. So I decided to explore this further, and over the next three years, ran a series of quantitative studies that we repeated multiple times, as well as some qualitative exploratories, to start understanding what was behind all this and what was going on. And what we learned, was that people want companies to step in and solve their daily me concerns, the problems in their life through the products and services they offer, and they then simultaneously want companies to step in and solve their we problems, so their bigger issues. So this is what I call a me-to-we continuum. So the notion of citizenship is about delivering what you promise as a business, as well as bettering the world, not just about bettering the world. And this was a different aspect and way of looking at it. Wow, that's a lot to digest in one small bite. So let me just go back to make sure all of this is really, the first thing I find fascinating is back to 2011, how much the big picture things were on people's minds. And I actually Mm. think if you started that study again today, you'd find the same thing. It might not be about keeping your home or having health care, but it probably would be about being able to afford a lifestyle or keep a job or education or climate change or some of the bigger issues that we talk about Mm -hmm. today so that those are front and center when you ask people in an open way and I find it fascinating if I do remember back into 2011 that that was when the first data was coming out I believe from Trust Across America saying that in the U.S. in particular there was a massive distrust of government something I think is only expanded rather than declined, and that there was more trust in used car salesmen than there were in elected officials. 
So it was an incredible climate of not believing that government could do anything. It's an interesting debate of where we are today, but I will leave that away for another for another time, whether people believe we're in a better shape or in a worse shape on that one. But this interesting that is this is notion that businesses should step in and help fix the bigger issues, not just sell me good products. I find I find absolutely fascinating. And then this whole notion of the companies that are good citizens are the ones that make my life better in some tangible, mm-hmm. known way, whether it's hope or just a service that I value. And I want you to step in and help us solve the bigger world problems, not just generate profits. Did I get that in an accurate way? You absolutely did. And there's actually five steps that emerged from this grassroots up Great. That actually help explain how that works. All right. So tell us about those five steps. Okay. So, and, and I think it's important actually to emphasize the grassroots up because talking about this today, as, as you started off in your introduction, people often assume I went out there to develop my own model for, for purpose, for citizenship, for trust, for whatever you want to call it. Because this is a big highlighted thing in, in marketing, in communications, in uh, global sourcing, it's for business overall. But what's fascinating about this and why the five steps that I'll give you in a moment probably will resonate with you is because it was built from the grassroots up, not in a boardroom, not in a classroom, uh, not even in a university overarchingly through research. This was built through people telling us. And, and to me, that's what makes it so fascinating and what I got so excited about. Um, it wasn't that we were doing this top down. This really is bottom up. So it's about how businesses serve people and how businesses and serving people also serve society. So the five steps um, interestingly begin with trust. And you, you talk about trust across America. And what was most fascinating that trust was the starting point was that trust often is thought of as the end game for loyalty experts or corporate reputation experts. And historically, businesses felt once you have someone's trust, you're you're pretty much done. They're yours for life. Well, in today's world, it doesn't work like that. They have to trust you to even form any sort of relationship with you. So to come back to you over and over again, they have to trust you. So it's not the end game. It's the starting point. And, and that trust is all about being, being reliable, about being clear for what you stand for so people can benchmark you. It's about being sincere in your voice. You know, people today talk about authentic stories. Well, in a social world where we all have profiles in different places, we curate our authenticity. You know, we, we sort of pick and choose what we tell people about. So people are savvy and they understand that businesses, that brands, curate their stories as well. So more so than authenticity, this notion of sincerity, speaking from the heart builds trust. So you have clarity of purpose, being reliable, delivering everything each time over and over again as you promise people, Uh, sincerity. And then the other elements of trust that are really fascinating to me and really start bridging you into the second step are give to give, not to get. So reciprocity. So don't only have a loyalty program as a business to have me come and buy more things to you. Give me things. Give me information. In a digital world, it's so easy to set up things 
that helps people in their lives as part of your business. And people want to see you giving to give them freely as, as a form of thanking them for, for giving them business, not as a form of you going back and buying them and buying more from them. And that also partners with this notion that builds trust that's about active and empathetic listening, about hearing what people say. And, and, you know, we all talk about big data and privacy. And a lot of people don't have an issue with big data and privacy of companies because they think a company will serve them better. But then what goes and happens is, again, in that same way, give to give, not to get, a company then sends you only emails that cross-sell you. So that's not building trust. Why do you care about me? And, and so this notion of building trust is all about relationship and really engaging people in a relationship that's real, that's like a friendship. Um, so then you move from trust to enrichment. And enrichment is about bettering our lives, inspiring every day. And when you think about this notion of step two, enrichment, Apple starts making so much sense. As, as a brand that people thought of as a good corporate citizen because Apple has enriched people's lives in a very big way. Other brands that people talk to us about um, in the U.S., Mrs. Myers, which is a household cleaning product. People talk about Mrs. Myers products in ways um, that, that it's, it's effectively like love. Um, you, you hear men even say, oh, when my wife didn't buy Mrs. Myers, I was upset and didn't want to help washing the dishes. Um, and Mrs. Myers is made partially of fresh ingredients, and it's honest about which ingredients aren't. So that's an interesting way of enriching a life. First Bees was another brand people came up with that enriched lives. And Ikea. And Ikea is fascinating because Ikea is a really nice brand to think about in terms of moving from enriching lives to being responsible. And I know some people have love-hate relationship with Ikea, but when you learn more about Ikea and how it behaves, you see so many fascinating things in it because Ikea exhibits this journey, which I'm sure we'll talk about um, deeper, of, of purpose and citizenship in such an interesting way because businesses are trying to figure out this new model and new way of working. And Ikea exhibits how you can make mistakes and fix them and how you as a business, each time you do something better, people expect you to even do more. And as culture changes and expectations change for you as a business, in order to continue to enrich people's lives and to behave responsibly, which is step three, you have to change how you do things. And the story I like to talk about with IKEA is um, a glue. So IKEA's mission, its purpose as a business, is to offer things to people that they wouldn't otherwise be able to get, to make nice things and make your home um, have nice things and be accessible and help you to live better. So that really is about enriching lives. And what happens in doing this and in making uh, products that aren't necessarily solid wood, IKEA often uses particle board. And there was a period where particle board, the glue that made particle board, only had formaldehyde that actually could hurt people in it. And in Germany and Scandinavia, this became a big issue. And IKEA went out to try to find a new particle board supplier, and they couldn't. There was no one making particle board without formaldehyde. So instead of either stopping making particle board furniture, 
and stopping offering those types of products or offering them at a more expensive price, IKEA went out to chemical manufacturers in Germany to develop a new glue. And what they did was enrich people's lives, not only by what they sold people themselves, but they changed the way an industry created products and services. So that's amazing. And that starts showing you that bridge between enrichment and responsibility. So trust and enrichment sit at the we side of the, uh, the me side of the equation. And then we move into responsibility, step three, which is the pivot point between being a me brand and a we brand. And responsibility from this grassroots research up was all about more of these traditional notions that fall under corporate social responsibility or corporate citizenship. But the most important thing we learned in responsibility was that if you're not treating your employees well and fairly, people could care less if you're fixing the environment. And they won't give you credit for it. So it won't help you as a business. It won't strengthen your reputation. It won't build trust if people don't see you as first and foremost treating your employees well and fairly. And that's a really important point, and you see a lot of businesses get hit by that, whether it's Walmart, um, who every time I treat anything good, because when Walmart fixes a supply chain, they can fix a country. Um, So anytime I tweet anything good about Walmart, all I do is get comments back about people who are friends who Walmart hasn't been treating well or who were fired or things like that. So it's a really important thing, this treating employees well for companies. Amazon has had backlash about that too. And I'm sure you can think of many other companies where no matter what they do, if people don't think they're treating their employees well, it won't work. So then we shift into the we side of the equation. So trust, enrichment, responsibility. And the we side begins with community. So connecting people through shared values. That's about connecting your employees through shared values. And you know, diversity and inclusion is such a big thing that falls into that as well as into being a responsible business. How do you create groups of employees that are connected and honor each other's viewpoints? How do you connect employees in the local community? Uh, what sort of activities do you have that bring the local community and employees together that start building you as a business that's part of a larger community? Um, or how do you, as a business that serves other businesses, bring businesses together? And that one I really sort of like to emphasize a lot. There's, there's groups, whether it's Fair Trade or the Forest Stewardship Council, which bring businesses that all have the same values together to form communities and learn from each other. B-Labs, which certifies companies that have a mission that's both profit-driven as well as doing good-driven, brings companies together to learn from each other. And that community of businesses learning from each other is so really important and really helps advance society in a bigger way. And then from community, the final step, step five, is contribution. So make me feel bigger than I am through your products and services. And it's so easy to see how social enterprises fit in that category, whether it's a Warby Parker or a Tom's Shoes. People buy those brands because they feel like they're doing good, but those brands, products, and services also have to deliver something to them. Otherwise, you won't go back and buy it a second time. So you do have to deliver that me side of the equation, too. And there's a brand in the UK. You must know Kenko Coffee. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. are, you, are, are you familiar with their, their Coffee and Gangs initiative? No, I'm not. Ah, okay. So... 
people in my research told us about coffee and gangs with Kenko Coffee. Um, Honduras um, each year is ranked as either number one or number two in terms of being murder capital of the world. And Kenko sources a lot of its beans from Honduras. So it created an initiative called Coffee and Gangs where it offers scholarships to whether it's, it's 30 or 50 teenagers every year to give them an option because when uh, young, uh, when children hit a certain age, um, when they're teenagers, they have three choices. They can leave Honduras to stay safe and stay alive, join a gang, or be killed. So it's a really hard choice. And Kenko now offers a small number, but still a number that each year starts to exponentially grow a third, a fourth choice to become a, learn to be a coffee grower and become a coffee farmer. And imagine if Kenko took that notion of contribution and brought in the notion of community and brought together other coffee brands who source beans from South America and different countries that doesn't only have to be Central America and Honduras. Um, so Kenko brings together other coffee brands with more NGOs and creates a bigger initiative. You could change continents that way. So I don't know if you have any questions or if that sort of made sense, um, but it's clearly, as you said before, the whole thing's a lot to unpack. Um, but it really makes sense when you sit down and look at it because this is what people said they wanted. It wasn't something we crafted in a boardroom. Well, um, you start, I know you start with the word trust, but fundamentally this is strikes me as what companies would have to go down the route of in order to really build trust in their consumers in a deeper level. Commitment, I guess, is what mm-hmm. I'm really looking for. I just want to repeat the five in case people want to, as a refresher, one is trust. Trust is the starting point. If I don't see you as something I trust, then kind of none of the rest of it matters. And you see that. I'm going to come back to that one in a minute. Then enrichment. I want to make sure that you're doing something that improves my life every day in an interesting way. And that builds some more commitment and engagement. And then three is acting responsibly. And that's the pivot point, as you said, for moving into a more we world. And that has to do, you made very clear, if I'm not treating my employees well, then my customers are not going to care about what I'm doing. And then four is the community, bringing like-minded, interested people together, either other companies or my employees in the community, or I can imagine all sorts of services in my community where I operate. And then number five is this contribution that you do something as a company that's much bigger and my engagement with you makes me feel like I'm doing something much more important as a result. Fascinating. So five steps. I want to contrast that with something that has um, I've been reading about on social media lately, which is Unilever's statements about their sense of purpose. Uh-huh. It's a perfectly credible statement in many, many ways. And knowing a lot about Unilever, perhaps I think it's a reasonable statement. But it's gotten massive backlash on social media. And you can understand why, that if you look at your model, because it's not that the statement was wrong, it's that all these steps are missing. So first off, do we trust you, Unilever? Two, are you, Unilever, making my life better in a tangible way, enriching it? Three, are you treating your employees really well? Four, are you actively engaged in the community? And five, are you doing something above and beyond just selling me products? 
Mm. It's just, I think any anybody looking at a purpose statement or a mission statement or a brand statement for that matter needs to understand the five to understand where they're going to get backlash from what they're going out to marketplace with. I would agree with you. And, and I think what, so Unilever is clearly, and, and I talk about Unilever and I use Vaseline, one of their products and services, as uh, I profile Vaseline in Chapter 2 of my book that, that talks about the shift um, from solely financial value to balancing financial and social value. Mm-hmm. Um, Unilever, Paul Pullman is, is the face of, of Unilever's yeah. purpose, and he's since now retiring and stepping down, and he's going to be working, from what I understand, much more as a, in an ambassadorship with the UN and a variety of things with the SDGs. And it's interesting you bring up Unilever because people always talk about them and see them as one of the best examples of a company because um, of a company embracing purpose and embracing citizenship because Paul Pullman has, is so passionate about this. And how they charged their, their business to do it is interesting. So they've set up their largest brands and asked them to come up with a purpose that delivers against each of them. So it's an interesting exercise for a consumer goods company or for a company that, in brand terms, has uh, a master brand or a parent brand that often is not necessarily associated with the brands it owns. Mm -hmm. So the brands Unilever owns are actually the way they deliver these five steps. Mm -hmm. But... To your point, they don't communicate that necessarily. And they still internally use, uh, uh, and I could be wrong on this because it could have shifted since the last time I interacted with Unilever, but based on my knowledge base, which again, I, I just need to caveat, it could be slightly dated, they still use a much more traditional brand management model where each brand is charged to do this on their own. Yeah, um, yeah. Then they have corporate functions, which have to do with how they source things and things of that nature that um, reflect their sustainable living plan. Mm-hmm. So they mm-hmm. do have it, but the way they communicate how they deliver this is absolutely missing. And it's not all their brands that embrace this step. But right. I think it raises another issue that's really important that... We're very quick to call out people when they do things that are wrong. And Unilever is not purposefully behaving wrong. It's not behaving wrongly with intention. That's what I should use (laughs) as a word rather than purpose to confuse things more. Um, So Unilever is not intentionally doing something bad. It's on a journey to fix itself. And that takes a long time. Changing a model that has run business for a very long time cannot happen overnight. And I think people want it to happen overnight, but it can't. And we need to reward companies when they're doing things good as much as call them out right. when they're bad. Right. But I think we should be focused on intention, calling out companies that are intentionally bad. Right. Not right. necessarily who are operating with new and old models all at the same time. So right. it's an interesting dilemma. And Based on my research for my book, that dilemma is what scares so many CEOs and so many executives in large and small companies from even stepping on the pathway 
of embracing yeah. good brand citizenship, embracing doing good. All right. Okay, and we're going to have to take a break at this point because I thought 15 things I could follow up with you on, <laughs> but we'll take a break and come back to it. So with me today is Ann Barra Thompson. The book is Do Good, Embracing Brand Citizenship to Fuel Both Purpose and Profit. And just to highlight, there are five steps in the evolution of creating brand citizenship. One, trust. Two, enrichment. Three, responsibility. Four, community. And finally, five is contribution, the sense of I'm getting more by buying products from you. We'll be right back. And when we come back, I want to pick up this notion about purpose and trust and leadership and talk about how all of these come together when you go on this journey of brand citizenship. We'll be right back. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network if you want more information on the articles books coaching and seminars we offer go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com you're sure to find some helpful links videos and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization leadership forum inc helping organizations get it and keep it How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Kless. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. 
That's Wanda.Wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Anne Baer-Thompson. The book we've been talking about is Do Good, Embracing Brand Citizenship to Fuel Both Purpose and Profit. And just to recap, we were talking about Anne's launch into this work really in the in 2011 and then moving forward in the coming years since then and starting talking to average consumers in both the U.S. and the U.K. about their hopes and fears and dreams and what brands or companies they thought were good and bad citizenship citizens. So a very grassroots, grounds-up study of what it was that people valued in the companies that were around them. And the net result is, number one, we begin with trust. If the consumer doesn't trust you, then nothing else happens from there. And then it goes on to the five steps that we've just reviewed on the brand citizenship model. Now, I find this fascinating from a point of view of positioning your brand, but I think it also has huge implications as we start to talk about purpose or trust in general, or more importantly, leadership. And that's what I want to focus on on this segment. So, and we've used the word purpose, and we were just talking about you Lever at the last end of the last segment. And I swear purpose is the buzzword today, but everybody has a whole bunch of different meanings about it. How do you think about purpose? So it's a really great question because purpose does have many meanings. And for a lot of people, purpose is, is solely about um, employees fulfilling, having a sense of fulfillment at work. Um, but purpose, when we start talking about it in the sense of a corporation and what, or a business, let's say overall, because not every business is a corporation, is purpose is the reason a business exists at the highest level. It means you're being intentional about everything you do. And the thing that's really important is that people often think of purpose as a social mission or an ad campaign, but if purpose is the reason your business exists at the highest level, it means it's rooted in the business you're in, so it's connected to your industry and the products and services you deliver. But it's at such a higher order level that this reason for being or this raison d'être is broad enough to encompass the social mission. So it tells the story of how a company impacts people both through the products and services it offers, how it operates and behaves, and how that creates value in society. And to me, it's an embodiment of your ethos that's inspiring to executives, employees, customers, investors, partners. People get it and they're inspired by it. And it brings together values and value, which is something businesses um, historically don't do. They keep values and value separate. One's one department, another's another department. So purpose ties all these things together and ties, ties together how you operate in every sense of the manner. So can you give me an example of a company that you think gets this sense of purpose as you define it in the right way? And I love that you said it's the values. It's our reason for being. Therefore, it impacts everything we do. Values and value tied together. Yeah. So, I mean, there's uh, in, in, in my book, I, I, I highlight numbers of companies. I mean, I talked a little bit about IKEA before, which really does have a sense of purpose. It, it has a sense of of, of offering, 
you know, making things available to people that wouldn't be available otherwise, and that centers around the home for them. Um, you're you're uh, between the U.S. and the U.K. as I am, and uh, I, do you know the brand Lush? Yes, I do. I'm not okay, sure so how Lush, widely known that is, but yeah. Yeah. So I'm. Yeah. So Lush is a brand of handmade cosmetics, and Lush's purpose is to make a difference in the world with the choices they make as a brand. And one of the things they have in their belief statement is fresh and organic have an honest meaning beyond marketing. And the reason I chose that as an example is because I think it ties very much to some of the other points you're making. So let's, let's deconstruct Lush a little bit. Now, Lush's founders, interestingly, have had multiple lives in a business. And, and the thing that jumps out um, when you read my book and what jumped out to me when I was researching a lot of these companies is a lot of these businesses that really know how to balance, how to align purpose and profit, have had multiple lives. And so much comes from their founders or the person who's leading the charge is passion in the same way we were talking about Unilever and Paul Pullman's passion. So Lush's founders um, worked in a, uh, a beauty shop, in a salon in Poole, and they made products for your hair and for, for uh, cosmetics and things. And they eventually left their job in this uh, beauty shop and pool and started making products fresh. And they actually supplied products to the body shop. And the founders were behind a lot of the body shop's belief in not testing products on animals um, to develop them. So uh, Mark Constant Mark Constantine and Liz Weir, I hope I didn't get their surnames mixed up, I do that sometimes, um, were the founders, and they really believed that animal testing was a bad thing. They, they also believe in this idea of, of handmade products and, and naked packaging. So they supplied products to the body shop, and then the body shop eventually bought the, the rights to these products they made. So they had to start over again, but they still had the same passion. So they went out and they started baking soaps based upon with fresh ingredients, fresh, fresh herbs and things that were available in the local market. And people started smelling, as, as I'm sure if you've walked by a Lush store, for anyone that hasn't, you can smell it from blocks away when they're baking. They actually bake their soaps and their shampoos in their stores, and you can smell it. So this idea of naked packaging, to make a difference in the world with the choices we make as a brand fresh and organic have honest meaning beyond marketing. They are all about showing, not telling. They bake their soaps fresh. They use fresh ingredients. They have naked packaging, meaning there's no packaging. Um, They believe in these things so strongly that many of their campaigns, which have been controversial at times, are all around these beliefs. They're the people who work in their shops also believe in these things, so they hire based on this. And they had a a fun story I like to tell is one campaign they had to promote naked packaging. At noon one day, all the people who worked in their shops stepped outside on the sidewalk in just their pinafores, which means just their aprons and no other clothing, to emphasize the idea of what (laughs) naked packaging meant. (laughs) So clearly the people they hire believe in this. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to get someone who works in your store to walk out on the street in that way. Um, and they, they 
fight for rights in China and a variety of things. So it's all about what they do, not telling. Now, they do embed these things into their communications, but the challenge is that so many brands, when they set out on this pathway, start with communications rather than reflecting on what they're doing. And to build that trust, it has to first be about what you're doing, not what you're telling. That's interesting. That has huge implications for me in terms of leadership and personal brand. I know that wasn't the intent of our show here, but if you think about the personal brand side and you as a leader side, the showing what you do before you actually tell people what it is you're going to do has some big implications there. I I like that one. Start with showing. (laughs) Excellent. Yeah, and I have to say, I I can't claim that. That came from an MBA student recently when I was at uh, doing a lecture (laughs) at one of the big um, uh, business schools. Someone said to me, so what you're telling me is this is about showing, not telling. And he said, all my marketing classes are emphasizing storytelling. None of them have been (laughs) emphasizing the showing. So it's a really important message. Very good. Very good. Not just telling the story. I think a lot of companies get that wrong, particularly on this level. And you see, as you look at your studies in the beginning, that consumers are looking, starting with the trust, which is you said it, but now are you actually doing it? Then we Mm -hmm. move into all the other levels that are going to make all the difference in the loyalty programs and so on. Now, I just made a leap here about leadership, um, I think you've said to me when we chatted before the show that you really started this study initially not so much about brand and brand citizenship, but to learn about leadership. Is that true? And if so, what have you learned about leadership? That is true. And, and it's interesting because before I completed the three years of research, in the first year, the first two years, I often talked about this as the new leadership and loyalty. And uh, brand citizenship emerged subsequent to that. Well, what, what I learned about leadership, and I think it's an interesting time to be talking about that because there's more and more calls for CEOs to step up and, and take stances today. And that goes back to that notion of business stepping in and filling the void um, that government isn't filling. And leadership... It, to be, to be thought of as a, a good citizen, it really does have to stem from the top. You know, you, you can't, you have to, the CEO has to own it. It can't be delegated. And I think that's really an important point. And what we learned in the, the first two years and, and through the third year, if not fourth year of studies, um, was that the characteristics that people use to describe leaders were valid for characteristics they used to describe brand leaders, people leaders, politicians, various things. And, and what they were were visionary. So in, and, and you'll start seeing a lot of the same words come up that I talked about in the five steps. So a leader is visionary. They inspire people with a clear view on how they shape society and, and, and how they behave. They're courageous. They take considered risks that propel society forward. You may not always get it right, but you're going to take a risk to try to get it right. And following that, you're sincere. And I spoke about sincerity a lot before, but paradoxes are allowed, but contradictions aren't. You know, So if you're a company, whether it's your choice of plastics or fuel or the types of employees you hire, these things have to all align and deliver whatever you're claiming as your purpose. 
You're empathic. You understand the values of the people you're serving. You understand the values of your employees, of, of your, your stakeholders. And stakeholders do include investors. We can't preclude investors out of here because in a public company and even in a private company with funding, investors are important. So visionary, courageous, sincere, empathic, transparent. You know, you're honest about what you're doing. And importantly, you're honest about what you're not doing. You know, the, the, and when you look at the cosmetics industry or um, household cleaning products, people want to know what is and is not in your products and services, or in your products, rather, the ingredients. And if you hide things that aren't necessarily natural and claim being natural, that's a problem. And people, once they find out, because they will, will hold that against you. You have to be honest about what's in there. And I spoke about Mrs. Myers, and what they do really well is they are honest about what's natural and what's not. And and S.C. Johnson, who bought them, continued that even after they became part of a larger organization. Um, we found also that people want leaders to be efficient. They want them to strip out excessive bureaucracy, not be about hierarchy or, you know, formality. And you start seeing that in corporate cultures in today's world. And, and that's the thing people claim is what holds back government in part, beyond the fact that there's opposing parties. And then being practical. Satisfy people's needs by delivering actionable solutions that give people greater control over things, that help companies move forward, that help policies move forward. So visionary, courageous, sincere, empathic, transparent, efficient, and practical were the characteristics that came out of the study. Wow. That's an incredibly wonderful list. And especially I like the way that you have defined it outside of our usual definition. So like you said, visionary, but it's not just about having a vision about where we're going to go. It's a vision about what we're trying to do and what that means and how I'm serving employees. It's the whole package there. I have a vision and that's inspiring or the clear view. And as you said, courageous, willing to take some risk to move society forward, sincere about that, empathetic, that means you're understanding, transparent, efficient, and practical. Great, great set. Now, I know you talked about this in terms of CEOs and that if CEOs don't own it, then it doesn't help the company very much. But what about in the midst of the organization? Do you think the same applies to, you know, a leader who's trying to take his or her division or business unit at a smaller scale into a greater territory of doing good? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, doing good is both top-down and bottom-up. <laughs> um, and, and the thing about it is, and when I talk about, you know, the five steps of brand citizenship, yes, it's a fixed model, but you know what? Let go of the five steps. Let go of the model. Think of it as an ethos. Think of it as something that frames your culture, and frame behaviors that get rewarded. So absolutely, if, if the CEO is saying something, but that mid-level manager isn't getting it and isn't delivering it in how they interact with people day to day, or the factory floor manager, which is a big issue, it's just not going to work because mm-hmm. it, it's not going to be, you know, imbued across every operating aspect of a company and that's really how it has to be and I think the reason I talk about the CEO owning it versus delegating it is so often this stuff gets delegated to departments that have the right title you know it's the sustainability team 
or it's the cause marketing team or the philanthropy or, you know. So it's the idea that it isn't the responsibility of a single department or even a single person, to your point. It's an ethos. It's a cultural aspect that defines the company and how it conducts business. Okay. Um, I realize that I may be asking a question you can't answer in the three minutes that we have left. But if someone wanted to start on this journey, what's the first single most important thing to do? Just it, it comes down to courage and just saying, I'm going to do it. And start chunking it up into small things. Because it is a journey and you're not going to get everything right out of the box. And when you think of it too holistically, it becomes onerous. So it's almost like, what can I do for today? uh I like that. What can I do for today? So I might think about the bigger picture and say, what would I change today? What would I change in this Mm -hmm. meeting? What would I change in this purchase order? What would I change in this supplier today? That's going to lead us to where I think we should be. Uh, Do you advocate getting lots of people together to try to define what this thing means for us, how it is that we're going to do good, or does that make any difference at all? Is this a community effort? It's, well, I believe it, it has to be a community effort in no other thing than if a CEO declares this is how this company does good and no one believes in it, it ain't going to work. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. You know, and that's why I believe it is top down and bottom up. It has to come from all sides. And even if the CEO declares it in, in a, um, you know, overarching manner, you need to know what other people believe because those are red flags. I always used to say this in, in rebranding companies. You need to know what those red flags are because you, it would, once you know them, you can fix them. When you don't know what they are, you're just going to constantly bang up against walls and it's not going to happen. Fabulous. And we're nearly out of time, and I have a feeling we could talk for another two hours about this one. There's so many more examples I'd like to hear and so much more to say. I think it's a fascinating journey you've been on to understand that the world, the U.S. and U.K., at least from that part of the world and others since then, want companies to step in and fix some of the big problems that we all see and take some of the role that we might have relied on government for in the past, and that shows in your studies. But equally, we want those companies to provide something that makes my life as the customer-consumer better. And that begins with trust, that if I don't trust you as the company, none of the rest of what you say matters. And as you so eloquently said, it's about showing me that you're doing the good things, not about telling me in an ad campaign that you're doing it. And letting that thing that you're doing permeate every aspect of the business, it's your reason for being at a higher level. And I think that's the essence of brand citizenship. Did I do a decent job? You did an absolutely great job. And I just want to say one other thing. Yes, doing please. Doing good is not a cost of doing business. It is an investment into being more profitable and sustaining your business. Thank you. We didn't get to talk about that one, but I think if you pick up the book, Do Good, you'll find that there's a lot to say in there about both this whole notion of purpose and profit. And thanks very much for being a guest for today and join us next week. Um, I guess I should say before I go, my highlight, the thing I just love more than anything else is this notion that we start with trust, not end with trust. So join us next week for another episode and how to get out of your comfort zone. 
Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week. Oh,